me ask you this question. How many of you love Ikea stores? If you love Ikea, raise your hand. My whole family has their hand raised over here because we love Ikea. But I think with most of us, there's kind of a love-hate relationship with Ikea, isn't there? Uh, isn't there sometimes when you, uh, your expectation and the reality don't quite match with Ikea? Like what you see walking through the store uh, isn't quite what you get if you purchase something. Let me, let me show you an example. Say you're walking through the store and you find uh, the kitchen of your dreams. Like you would love to have this kitchen in your house and you think, oh, that's it. And as you walk through the store, you don't find anything else like it. You love the cabinets, you love the floor, you love the countertops. And you think, that's what, that's what I'm going to do. That would look so good in my house. And so you, you pull aside the salesperson and you go through their design process and you design the kitchen of your dreams and you put your credit card down and you order it. And then a couple weeks later, the Ikea truck shows up at your house and the kitchen of your dreams looks something like this. Right? Because when you buy stuff in Ikea, it's all flat packed. It's all in boxes. And you know that everything that you need to assemble the kitchen of your dreams is in that pile somewhere. But you have no idea where to start. You, you need some kind of guideline, right? You need some kind of instruction. Or better yet, you need a picture of what that finished kitchen is supposed to look like to help you get going, right? Well, before he left earth, Jesus gave us this command found in Matthew 28. It's often called the Great Commission. He says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's one of the last things Jesus said to his followers. He said it after he had been crucified, he was raised from the dead. He brought them up on this hillside and he told them this. So it's one of the last things he said. So we know it's really important, right? But I think in a lot of ways, the Great Commission for many of us uh, is a lot like a big pile of Ikea boxes sitting in our kitchen. We don't really know where to start with putting this whole thing together, right? And so um, we know because it's called the Great Commission, it's not great necessarily because uh, it's incredible, that's true, but it's great because it's for everyone. So this is not a good suggestion. It's a great commission, all right? And so Jesus told us this, but, but can you imagine? Now, if the Ikea salesman, when you're checking out, or saleswoman, when you're checking out says, you know what, I'm going to come back in a few weeks, and I'm going to come to your house, and I'm going to check on that kitchen of yours. It's going to give you a little bit of motivation to figure out how to get this thing put together, right? Can you imagine what it'll be like when we stand before Jesus and he asks us what we did with his great commission. That's why we're starting this brand new series called Profile. Uh, a profile can be designed as a representation and outline, you know, like uh, the side of somebody's face. Uh, but also a profile can be a written description that provides information about someone or something. So if you think about like if you watch police dramas, if you watch any of those, they often have a profile uh, on their, their suspect, right? They've, so maybe the police have a profile on some of you. I hope not, but maybe they do. They've got a profile that's a written description that has some characteristics about you, some things that they know to be true about you. And what we hope to have at the end of this seven weeks is that, a written description, a profile of what a mature disciple looks like. It'll be something that you can take home with you and you can uh, use it as kind of a mirror, hold up to your face and say, am I a mature disciple? 
You can use it for, the, for someone you're investing in, and you can say, are they maturing? Are they becoming a mature disciple? So you'll have this picture to know whether somebody you're investing in is a mature disciple. Now, I want to tell you why this is so important for our church and why <clears throat> we're asking all of our groups to follow along. Uh, every connection group in the church, I think we've asked personally to follow along uh, with this series. Uh, why we want you to be here for all seven weeks of this series it's because we're going to introduce some language in the next seven weeks that we are going to use, Genesis is going to use uh, for years to come in the way that we define what a disciple looks like. And so whether you're a Christian or not, we're going to give you some next steps to take, and we're going to paint a picture of what a mature disciple looks like. Now, where will that come from? Well, it's going to come from Scripture. And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to look through the Scriptures for specific evidence of what Jesus was thinking when he told us to go make disciples. Like, what did he have in his mind? Because, look, there's all kinds of opinions about what it means to be a Christian, right? I mean, chances are you know someone who says they're a Christian and they're a follower of Jesus, and they, they act much differently than you do. They, they, um, they dress much differently than you do. They run their house much differently than you do. And I'm a Christian, and they're a Christian, but we're very different. In fact, based on your tradition, on your background, you might think that whether or not you're a Christian has to do with whether or not you go to church. Well, I would say that you know, being a disciple has more to do with what happens on Saturday night than what happens on Sunday morning. Um, unless you go to church on Saturday night, in which case, you know what I'm talking about, right? So it's what happens outside of this place. So, you know, your tradition may say uh, being Christian is whether or not you go to church or how you worship or what spiritual gifts you have, that if you don't have these spiritual gifts, you're not a real Christian or, or how you feel about social justice issues or how you feel about tithing. And while all those things are important, I mean, being at church is important, how you worship is important, spiritual gifts, using your spiritual gifts is important. What, I wanna, what we want to get at is what did Jesus have in mind? Like, what did Jesus mean over 2,000 years ago when he brought all his closest followers up on a hillside and he said, go and make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything that I've told you? Let me ask you this. If you were one of those disciples 2,000 years ago and Jesus pulled you up on a hillside and said, go and make disciples, would you know what he's talking about? What would come to your mind? See, I think those disciples knew exactly what Jesus meant because they'd walked with him for three and a half years. They'd had the, the privilege of being poured into by Jesus. They had seen the master at work making disciples, and so they knew what it meant. They knew it was hard work. They knew what it was going to look like. They knew that Jesus' example would be their guide. But here we are 2,000 years later, and unfortunately, we don't have that kind of direct in-person experience with Jesus to see him make disciples. But I believe that we can find the profile of a mature disciple in the scriptures. And that's what we're going to do in the New Testament. Now, there are many places, in fact, we can hear Jesus talk about what a disciple is, but we see probably the most complete description in this passage in John 15. Uh, let me tell you why. I wonder how many of you have ever heard of this book. It's called The Last Lecture by Randy Pouch. Pouch. Pausch, I think it's Pausch. Anybody ever heard of this? Anybody ever read this? It was a New York Times bestseller for 112 weeks, so more than two years on the list. Uh, sold 5 million copies in the U.S. Has been translated into 48 different languages. Pretty popular book a few years ago. I think it came out in 2008. Uh, professor Pausch was a uh, professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. And uh, he uh, did his last lecture just a couple weeks after he was diagnosed with inoperable pancreatic cancer. And this lecture is based on a series of lectures where they asked famous academics to give a lecture about, uh, and the question was this, what wisdom would you want to impart to the world if you knew it was your last chance? Isn't that a great question? What would you want to tell people 
if you knew it was your last chance. Well, John 15 is really Jesus's last chance to impart wisdom to his disciples. And so maybe you don't think too much about the chronology of how the New Testament unfolded, but, but if you think about John 15, John 15 happens right near the end of Jesus's life. It's like the last day he's alive. In fact, that very night, uh, his disciples are walking to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be betrayed by Judas, arrested, and then the next day he'll be tried and convicted, beaten brutally, and crucified, hung on a cross to die. And so this is really Jesus' last chance to leave instructions for his disciples. This is his last sermon. It's, his, it's Jesus' last lecture. Have you ever been forced to think about this in your life? Like, what would happen if you only had days or hours to leave instructions for the people you love the most? What would you tell them? I mean, chances are you're not going to argue with them about the outfit they're wearing. Right? You're not going to teach them about the benefits of flossing twice daily, and no matter however that important may be. Uh, you're going to only have time for the very most important things, Right? And that's what's happening here with Jesus. And he gives us his most complete definition of what a disciple looks like. In fact, it's the summary. John 15 is the summary of everything he's taught his disciples over the past three and a half years. And in John 15, 8, this is the verse we're going to focus on today. He says this, this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, this is a simple verse. It's pretty short. It only takes a couple seconds to read. Uh, it's easy to memorize. You can do that. You can memorize it. In fact, you should memorize it. You could probably do that uh, tonight. Uh, but there's a lot there. In fact, uh, there's three phrases that Jesus uses in here that are really going to help us define the qualities of a mature disciple. <clears throat> and so I'm going to start with the last phrase first. Uh, the last four words are to be my disciples. Right? The word disciple means student. It means uh, learner or it means follower. And so this may be really obvious. Um, well, if you, a, a disciple is one who would follow their rabbi around. And so uh, they would follow them physically, uh, and they would pattern their life after their rabbi. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you'll still see rabbis uh, with their disciples walking with them, following them, walking around them. And so this, you can imagine 2,000 years ago, this being Jesus and some of his followers. And so the first one may be really intuitive, really simple, but I think it matters. And it's this, a mature disciple follows Jesus. A mature disciple follows Jesus. Really simple, but really important. Because, because don't we all know people who would say they're Christians, but they aren't following Jesus? Like we know people that can't tell you one thing Jesus said, like one truth that he taught. So instead, they've got this bad coffee mug theology of, well, I think this is in Scripture, or I think that doesn't the Bible say, but it's not really there, right? Because they don't know, because they haven't studied Jesus. They're not following Jesus. At the same time, there are some people that are really nice, and they're generous, and they're friendly, and they're loving, and they're good neighbors, and they even go to church, but they're not following Jesus. They're not disciples. Jesus' disciples followed him everywhere. They went to Samaria with him. The Bible says that a good Jew wouldn't be found dead in Samaria. And Jesus' disciples followed him into Samaria. They're with him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's arrested. Like they're going to dangerous places with Jesus. Jesus' disciples went everywhere with him over 40 times. 40 times in the New Testament, Jesus gives us a command like, follow me, walk as I walked, pattern your life after mine. He extended that invitation. He said, follow me to just about everyone he met, and he's still extending it today. In fact, if you're here today and you're in a 
tough place in your life, I want you to know that Jesus is extending that invitation to you. That if you're here and you're feeling lost or broken or worn down or without hope, Jesus is extending to you an invitation to follow him. In Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No matter what's on your heart today, no matter who you are, Jesus wants you to follow him. Because the heart of being a disciple is this idea that Jesus was a real person who lived a real life, died a real death so that we could find our way back to God. And then he overcame death and he's alive today and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding on our behalf when we pray. He is, uh, he's leading his church. He is alive and living and you can follow him and you should follow him. Now, what does that look like to follow Jesus? Well, practically speaking, get to know him. Read his words, study what he said, study what he did. Read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Understand what Jesus was all about. Pray to him. And when when you pray, take time to listen. Don't just talk, but listen to hear what he has to say. The scripture says that Jesus wants us to know his voice. You know, study Jesus's uh, methods for ministry. Study him as the model for your life. So first, a disciple, a mature disciple follows Jesus. Let's get back to our key verse, John 15, 8. This is to my Father's glory, he says, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. That first phrase, this is to my Father's glory. Again, I think the second one's pretty obvious. A mature disciple brings glory to God. A mature disciple brings glory to God. Jesus was always and only about giving God glory for everything. Just read through the book of John. You read through the book of John, time after time, you'll hear people trying to praise Jesus, like they're, they're heaping praise on him, trying to praise him, and Jesus always takes that and defers it and, and gives it to his father, all right? Uh, he says in John 5, 19, he says this, uh, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees his father doing. Jesus says, I, don't, I can't do anything by myself. I only do what I see my father doing. John 5, 30, he says, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but to please him who sent me, giving glory to God. John 8, 28, Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the father has taught me. So often people would come to Jesus and they would say, he spoke as someone who had authority. And Jesus says, that, none of it comes from me. It all comes from my father. You know, it doesn't happen all the time, but occasionally one of you will come up to me after the service and said, you know, something you said was really good and you'll tell me how, what it meant for you or whatever. And I just so want to take that glory for me. And so sometimes I'll say something, you know, when I was out running this week, it just came to me and I came up with that on my own. And really, God gave me that. So I just want to tell you, if, you ever, if there's ever anything useful in any of my sermons for you, it came from God. It didn't come from me. But I don't always tell you that because I like having glory. You know, once when a crowd gathered around Jesus and wanted to kill him in John 10, Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works, many miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Jesus said, all the miracles you saw me do, they came from my Father. They didn't come from me. He's bringing God glory. In John 12, he said, for I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken. And then he gets to the end of his life. John 17, just a couple chapters after what we're reading now, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane to his father, and he says this, John 17, 4, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Basically, he says, Dad, I'm done. I brought you glory. I did what you told me to do. 
That's what his focus was. His motivation was all about bringing glory to God. How would you describe your level of motivation? At giving God glory. A mature disciple follows Jesus. A mature disciple brings glory to God. And finally, uh, one more time, back to John 15, 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. That last phrase we're going to focus on is the one in the middle, that you bear much fruit. And so, number three, a mature disciple bears much fruit, much fruit. Why does Jesus use the analogy of fruit here? What does fruit represent? Well, to understand that, I think we need to look at the whole passage, all right? So let's look at all of John 15. Uh, Jesus is teaching that he is the vine and we are the branches. And so here's how I imagine it, because it's the last day of his life, uh, his, his human life on earth. Jesus is walking on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to be uh, he's going to be betrayed and arrested. And he's walking and he's probably thinking, okay, what, what's the one thing I want to instill in my disciples? And he walks through a vineyard. This is how I picture it. This is not scriptural. This is, I'm using my creative, uh, my, my spiritual imagination, all right? So he walks, he walks past this vineyard and he goes, this is it. Okay, this is perfect. Guys, stop here. I'm the vine and you're the branches. He says, my father is the gardener or the vine dresser. And my father goes through the vineyard and he's looking for branches that bear fruit, right? And he says, he takes any branch that doesn't bear any fruit and he cuts it off. And then any branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it can bear more fruit. And this is, and it gets really good. He says, and this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit. And so Jesus says, hey, there are branches that bear no fruit. And there are branches that bear some fruit. And there are branches that bear more fruit, and there are branches that bear much fruit. And it's to my Father's glory that you be a branch that bears much fruit. So think about this analogy, okay? Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. I don't know how much you know about vineyard culture, but fruit never grows directly on the vine. It never sprouts off the vine. It only sprouts off the branches. So the vine does not produce fruit. Only the branches produce fruit. However, the branches have to be connected to the vine or else they won't produce any fruit. So Jesus is very clear. If we don't stay connected to him, that we can do nothing, that we, we don't bear any fruit. So it's very clear. Jesus has a part to play, but we have a part to play and we have a say in whether or not we bear fruit. So what is fruit? What kind of fruit are we talking about? Well, if you know your Bible well, you probably, your mind immediately jumps to Galatians 5 and you think about the fruit of the Spirit, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And that's good. I think that's part of it. But, but if you skip down to John 15, if you're in John 15, if you could look down to verse 16, Jesus tells his disciples what kind of fruit he wants them to bear. Do you see that there? What's it say? It says, uh, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so Jesus is talking about eternal fruit. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that's all great stuff, but it's mostly for use here on earth. But the fruit that Jesus wants us to bear includes eternal fruit, right? Fruit that will last. And so we've identified, our teaching team and our staff, in fact, has spent almost a year studying this. What does fruit mean in the New Testament? 
And uh, we've spent the year searching the New Testament for fruit that will last. And we've identified four kinds of fruit in the New Testament. We would say these are four fundamental areas in which we should be growing if we want to show that we're a mature disciple. If you, you want to be a disciple, you need to be growing in these four areas. Now, to make them easier to remember, we've given them all names that start with I. Good church thing to do, right? So we call them the four I's. And so here they are. If you're a, great, if you're a note taker, if you love taking notes, you're going to love this because I'm going to give you all four at once. So you've got all your notes right here. The four I's are identity, intimacy, integrity, and influence. Identity, intimacy, integrity, and influence. So uh, we'll go through these one by one. I'm going to go through them really quickly, but don't worry. You'll have seven weeks to hear about this, all right? So uh, first, identity. Identity means you understand who you are. That, that if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says you're a child of God, that you've been adopted by him. You, you have all the rights of a son or daughter of the Most High God. And anytime you start to get off course, right? anytime you get off track, you start doing something that you know is not right, that you just remember who you are, who you're made to be, what rights you have, uh, who you are as a son or daughter of God, and that will help get you back on the right path because you know who you are. You remember who your, who your dad is. So identity is first. Second is intimacy. Intimacy means you have close relationships with God and with other people. Uh, in John 13, Jesus said this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, as you grow to be a disciple, uh, you should certainly grow closer to God. There's no doubt about that. But scripture says you should also grow in your relationships with other people, specifically with other Christians. That, that if you always find yourself cynical and you don't like a whole lot of people in your church or even outside your family, uh, either you need to find a new church or you have to ask yourself, am I really growing in intimacy with God? Like if you have a hard time getting along with people in the church, if you have a hard time loving people uh, in your church. You need to ask, am I growing in intimacy with God? Because Jesus said, that's how you'll know. Like that's how the world will know. They'll know that you're my followers, you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Okay. So identity, intimacy, the third eye is integrity. Integrity means you're developing the character of Jesus. Uh, in first John two, six, John writes, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did, or some translations say must walk as Jesus walked. There are all kinds of passages in the New Testament about the transformation of our character, about how God wants to give us his Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and shape us and convict us. Is your character growing to be more like Christ? Because if he's not changing your life, there's a good chance he's not leading your life and you're not abiding in him. Now, you'll never be perfect. Okay, none of us will be perfect this side of heaven, but one pastor I know likes to say it this way, uh, over time, you will not become sinless, but you should sin less. Identity, intimacy, integrity, and finally, the fourth one is influence. Influence means you make disciples who make disciples. So as you learn your identity, you understand who you are, you grow in intimacy with God and with other people, uh, as you build your integrity, you are going to have more and more opportunities to influence people to speak into their lives. People are going to notice that you're different. You know, people at work will notice that you take time to pray during your lunch break or before you begin uh, work each day. People in your neighborhood will notice you're not as busy with other activities and sports because you're prioritizing worship in your life. 
Uh, people at school will notice your integrity as, as you talk about Jesus, and then you don't go out and party on Saturday nights. You don't go out and get drunk or get high or have sex. And, and people will start to look at you, and they look at your life, and they say, what is different about this person? Like, like what is it that makes them the way they are? And you'll get all kinds of questions, and you'll have the opportunity to have influence on other people because of those things. Now, why are we spending seven weeks on this topic? It's so important to remember that we will reproduce who we are. We reproduce what we are, and we want to make four-eye disciples. Not four eyes and like that you're wearing glasses, all right? But four disciples that exhibit the four eyes, that are growing in the four eyes. Because if you just go out into the world without being rooted in your identity and without growing in intimacy and building up your integrity, then you will have the wrong kind of influence, You'll end up reproducing disciples who are immature, and immature trees don't bear fruit. And immature branches aren't ready to bloom or produce fruit. Immature disciples don't create disciples. So notice, as we've, I've been talking about this, we chose the words building, following, seeking, growing. What they have in common is they're all action words. They're all active words. They're all uh, in-process words, right? They're, they're all words that say, hey, there's, there's a process here. There's a process of maturity. We talked about this last week a little bit if you were here. There's a process of maturing in our faith. And the New Testament talks a lot about maturity. And it says that the process of growing in our faith is a lot like uh, the, the way a child grows up in the world. Uh, look, no one gets angry when a one-year-old stumbles and falls, right? I mean, I've had plenty of opportunity uh, to see three or four of my friend's kids take their very first steps. And you know what happens is the, the little boy or the little girl, they get up and they, they get up on, and they're kind of wobbly on their feet like this, right? And then they put their foot out and they take one step and mom and dad, you know what they do? They cheer, they clap, they go, yeah, all right, way to go, son, way to go, daughter, way to go, little girl. And they, they take four or five steps and everybody starts cheering and they're laughing and they're having fun and then boom, they hit the ground. And you know what never happens? What never happens is nobody goes, you're so stupid. Like, I can't believe you couldn't take more than three steps. We don't do that, do we? No, why? Because we expect that from someone who's immature. We know they're just learning to walk. And so there are going to be times, if you're, especially if you're new in your faith, where you're going to stumble. You're going to fall down and Hopefully, some Christian doesn't come up to you and say, you know what? You're a child of God. You shouldn't do that anymore. They're right. You shouldn't do that anymore. But you're a baby. But over time, you should mature. Now, if your child never learns to walk or talk or feed themselves or dress themselves, then you know there's a problem, right? There's some sort of uh, restriction there. There's some sort of disability there. A maturing disciples the same way. You know, we all know people who have been in church for 15, 20, 25 years, and they still can't feed themselves. They leave a church because they're not being fed. I'm like, you're 25 years old as a Christian. Shouldn't you be able to feed yourself by now? The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. He said, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. When you first submit your life to Jesus, you don't have all this stuff figured out. You care mostly about the concerns of this world. The Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth, he says, I can't address you like adults because you're too worldly. They're still spiritual infants. But as we abide in him, 
as we study scripture, as we pray, as we start to obey, as we follow God's Holy Spirit, you start to hear his voice. And as you start to hear his voice and you obey his voice, you start to recognize his voice. And you start to hear it more, and then you can pick it out in a crowd. And then you grow, and they mature. And then you don't fall down as much because you stop caring about the things of this world and you live your life with eternity in mind. Now, are these four things it? That's it, identity, intimacy, integrity, influence. I get those four things, I got it down. Well, no, but those are the fundamentals. I mean, the life of Jesus is a fascinating, never-ending study. You could spend your whole life studying Jesus and still not get to the bottom of that well. There are all kinds of wonders hidden in his life, but these are the fundamentals. And if you have them down, you can handle most situations that come your way. I, I, I think about it like this. Let's say um, you're asked to coach a basketball team and you've never coached basketball before. And you don't know anything about the intricacies of basketball, but you know every basketball player has to know how to shoot, dribble, pass, and rebound. Like if, I, if you get those four things down, you'll be able to handle most of the situations that come your way. Oh, there's all kinds of other things you could teach people, right? But I mean... Kevin Durant, when he goes to play basketball every day, he still practices shooting and passing and dribbling, right? Those are the fundamentals. We practice those, and when we practice them, we get better at them, and we mature at them. And, and if you learn these four fundamentals, you'll be successful most of the time. So one more thing as we close. Why is it so important that we mature? Why is it so important that we uh, grow in our faith? I, I want to show you one great reason, Second Peter chapter 1. Peter's writing to the, to the church. He's writing to Christians, and he says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. Now, I just want to go back through that for a minute before I tell you the punchline here. If you go to verse 5, goodness is integrity. Knowledge is intimacy with God. Self-control is integrity. Godliness is identity. Mutual affection is intimacy with others. And so if you look at that, you see the four eyes in this passage. Peter says, it's so important that you add all these things that you're growing. He says in verse 8, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, okay, if you are growing, if you're maturing in your faith, Peter says, if you're doing those things, it will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to see this because he's writing to Christians. He's writing to people in the church. Peter says that some people, some Christians, okay, this is not a salvation issue. Peter's writing to people whose eternity is secure. They're going to heaven. And he says, one day, some of you are going to be ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, one day, you're going to get to heaven, and you're going to be ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is one thing I never want Jesus to say about me. When I get to heaven, I don't want to be in the ineffective and unproductive line. I want to be in the well-done, good, and faithful servant line. He goes on to say, make every effort, make every effort to confirm your calling. And if you do, you will receive a warm welcome into the kingdom of God. That's, that's the line I want. I want the warm welcome line. 
the well done, good and faithful servant line. Because, and because we are a church who believes that Jesus is the son of God, that he lived a perfect life as an example to us, a life that we could never live. He died a horrible death that we deserved so that we could find our way back to God. And because he rose from the dead to give us hope for life after this one, because we believe he was resurrected, he promised. Guys, he promised he's coming back. One day Jesus is coming back and we're all going to have to stand before him. And I want to be a church who is ready. And the truth is, I still have way too many neighbors, way too many friends, and way too many people in my own family who are not ready for that day. So I want to spend the rest of my life making disciples who make disciples, who bring glory to God, and who are bearing much fruit. And I hope you'll join me on that journey. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you've given us this picture of what it means for us to mature in you. And Lord, I pray that I could be faithful, that I could make every effort to, be, uh, to, earn up, uh, to own up to my calling. Lord, I pray that you would help me to see this process of maturing in me and in my family and in the ones around me. Lord, I pray that you would help me grow in my identity in Christ. And I pray that for our church, that we would grow, that we would know and understand who we are in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us grow in intimacy with you and with others around us. God, I pray that your spirit would guide us in a life of integrity. That, that we could take off the old clothes and put on the new. That we would see that we are clothed in Christ. And when we're clothed in Christ, we don't do the things we used to do. Lord, help us to do that. And God, I pray that as a result of that, we would have influence. That we would have influence on the people around us. That they would look at us and look at our lives. And, and that when they do and they say, what is so different about you? That we would not take that glory for ourselves, but we would give it all to you and point to you and say, it's because of Jesus that we live this way. Lord, help us to remember that you sent your son and you're sending him again. And we need to be ready. Pray these things in Jesus' name.